0: three of the minimal pair. I'm Jean Dempsey and this is Stephanie Axe. Hi there. Hi Stephanie. So tonight's topic in language learning is L1 literacy. Uh, Could you maybe introduce that topic to our listeners? Sure. So
1: just in case somebody out there doesn't know, L1 refers to the first language that the person learned to speak. And what we're going to be talking about tonight is how that first language and how um, developed the literacy Uh, skills are, how that affects the second language or other language literacy skills.
0: So what are some things that can affect the L1 literacy in a negative way? Well, you know, I think we've got a lot of different
1: uh, things that could affect it, but one of the major things would be interrupted education.
0: Definitely. I know I've had a lot of students who were frequently displaced. Um, One- One uh, group that comes to mind is the Ahiska Turks, who are ethnically Turkish, um, but were born in Uzbekistan and then lived in various parts of the former Soviet Union. So they speak Turkish and Uzbek and Russian, and in some cases, um, Ukrainian as well, and now English. So conversationally, they're proficient multilingual in, in like three or four different languages, but are very weak reading and writing. And I think that that's probably because their education was frequently interrupted.
1: Sure, sure. Well, another, another type of interu- uh, interrupted education is with refugee camps when students are spending time in refugee camps and not getting educated. And, and they're there for, you know, an undetermined amount of time. And it affects, you know, how they're learning their first language. Um, of course,
0: they're still speaking their first language in most cases, but they're not writing and reading. And I bet if they're living in refugee camps or are experiencing some kind of conflict or persecution in their native country, then my guess is that they're not getting a lot of support from mom and dad who probably have a lot of other things on their mind um, and aren't able to help them. Or in some cases, they might not even be with their parents at all. I've had students who um, were refugees from the conflict in Bosnia who went to live in Germany and go to school by themselves without their parents. And in most cases, they... must have had some sort of adult contact there, but they weren't getting the kind of support and nurture that um, you and I probably got growing up. Right, right. Yeah, there, there are a lot of
1: separations of the family and, and, you know, with children, too, being put into certain groups. So, so yeah. And another um, example would be child laborers, uh, children who either because their families are, you know, at the poverty level or lower – and the children have to kind of help contribute to the family um, or just culturally, that's kind of what people do is rather than go to school, they are, you know, out working. Um, and, you know, we do see some people who had gone through periods in and out of periods of chi- being a, a child laborer. So,
0: Oh, that's interesting. I don't not I don't have any students who come to mind who were child laborers, but that's a really good point. Um and I think that it probably happens more frequently than, than we realize. I think um, that this is where doing a first-day survey could, could really come into play. Um, obviously not asking them straightforwardly <laughs> if they right. had had some sort of um, situation that would be uncomfortable for them to talk about, like, like, that, like child labor or war. Um, but just asking questions on a first-day survey like, tell me about your L1 education and how far did you get in school in your native country? or what languages can you read and write i think that that's helpful yeah. for the teacher to know yeah
1: you know i do use one of those forms that i kind of cater to my own specific needs and a lot of the questions that you just mentioned are on there you know i like to know if you know they speak other languages in addition to maybe their native language and whatever english that they do speak as well as even just finding out if they you know have taken classes before because sometimes some of the students um, who struggle with literacy issues they've had to retake classes because you know it just takes a little longer for them to
0: to get it definitely yeah that's definitely something that i ask um frequently and and i don't know how familiar familiar you are with the assessment and placement process but i do a lot of um, interviews and read sample essays for students who are just joining the program. And that is absolutely the kind of things that we would ask them. Um, Right off the bat, tell us how far did you go in school in your native country? What languages do you speak? What languages can you read and write? How would you describe your ability to read and write in English? And we really try to get an idea of their overall holistic educational background before we place them in one of our classes.
1: Sure, sure. So another challenge could be that you know maybe they were using multiple languages when they were growing up and so there are there can be some gaps in terms of what they know in their native language versus what they know in another language um and you know even some students that i've worked with who are not you know native speakers of english they were educated in english in some way
0: back home but you still do see some of these gaps definitely um i i have some students who grew up in African countries where English was technically the native language and they're still, um, in one way or another needing ESL services. Sure. So I think that that could be, um, a side effect of having grown up in a situation where they speak several different languages. Um, probably also not having a a native English speaker as a teacher, um, would influence that. Um, and I'm thinking again of those students who I mentioned earlier who were frequently displaced, um, who had to learn a new language in each country that they moved to. Um, so right. that, that definitely put them at a disadvantage that they were constantly having to start over. And you know, when we first started talking about this topic, I didn't really think
1: about it in my own life. But when I think about my children, because I have children who are attending a language immersion school, and their education is completely in French. And they they even have. I mean, I know they're a lot younger than some of the students that we work with, but in terms of their literacy progress, um, they're probably they probably have higher literacy skills in French than they do in English. Wow. Um, even though I mean they're native English speakers, so I
0: see that gap with them as well. That's a really interesting point. So I think what we can conclude that is that the language of instruction plays a bigger influence than the language spoken at home. Right.
1: Yeah. And like I recently read about how, you know, if you don't have that, if you, if you're given something in your first language, then it gives you kind of that step for using it in a second language. It kind of gives you that foundation. And so if you don't have that and you're expected to do, you know, certain things in a second language, it can, it can really um, cause some big question marks for students, I think.
0: Right. So, in other words, once you have phonemic awareness in your native language, then that transfers to your second and third language. And once you know how to um, write in one language, then it makes it easier. I have students who, quite frankly, look like they their handwriting. I would wonder if they've ever held a pen before. <laughs> and I sure. don't th- think that would be too far off in some cases. <laughs> Oh, sure, sure. But, yeah, once you know a noun,
1: you know, what a noun is, then you know what a noun is no matter what language you're speaking. And so I think that gives the students who have literacy skills an advantage, you know, in the classroom uh, versus students who, like we've talked about, have been displaced or um, laborers or in Refugees. refugee camps.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, I definitely have a lot of students who don't know what a noun is. Um, and it's interesting to think about because um, – I know that when I was in elementary school here in the United States, that I didn't have as strong a foundation in grammar as I think my parents' generation had. And I wonder if that's a trend that's occurring in other countries as well, that they're not focusing as much on grammar as they used to.
1: Well, I think it speaks to teacher styles. You know, like when you go back to the very traditional style where the teacher is up in the front and Diagramming sentences. diagramming sentences and conjugating verbs and, you know, that just information is kind of going one way. I think that that's probably more of a style of like our parents um, versus now things are more collaborative and student-led. And so um, it it's a different type of learning Um which we live in a different type of world now, so students have to be more dynamic, and they have to be able to kind of navigate things on their own. And so I think that may be a shift that you know that's kind of happened organically.
0: Mm-hmm. But it's it's interesting to, th- to think about other countries because when I taught uh, English in France, I was working with elementary school students, and I feel like their education system is much more comparable to what our parents might have experienced in school. It was much more um, strict and teacher-centered sure. um, and not having stuck around long enough to see how those students did later um, it's hard to say but I, I wonder if it affects their and especially in Europe where they have to learn a second language at, at a very young age anyway um, I just can't help but wonder if that gives them an advantage to have that stronger um, background in grammar I think that's a good question
1: um I think it depends what your goals are to be honest. I mean I have a friend that I met when I was living in France who uh, she was very fluent. You know we would go out and she would be able to talk with anybody in French and I hung back more. However, my grammar was a lot stronger. And so I think um, and it wasn't just a personality difference although that, that, that was there. I think some of it was the way that she learned. She learned in an immersion program, and so she learned by using the language. Where I learned, um, kind of in the old school way, where the teacher was the center of the classroom. Um, I mean, we did some collaborative type work, but not quite like you find in immersion schools.
0: And did your friend speak English? Was she she not, did. She yeah, she was a
1: she's Canadian. okay, from Vancouver. So yeah, she spoke English um. because that
0: kind of that brings us to another point in um, l one literacy, and that's when um, students have a shared l one. Mm-hmm. So I have had students in the past in my class who speak the same language as each other. And um, probably the initial reaction is, oh, that's great. They can help each other. But if you really think about it, uh, it can really hinder their learning as well because um, if, like in the situation you described, one is stronger in one area, then they could start to lean on each other and depend on each other. And and I know I've had students who, have, who share a language and they'll turn in work and I'll see the same mistakes. And I'm like, hmm, I think maybe yeah. they've been helping each other. And I know that they're not cheating. I know that they really are truly just trying to help each other, but... In some cases, it's not very helpful. Sure. Well, and in some
1: cases, it's a cultural thing with a more tribe type of mentality, you know, where we're a collective society. We take care of each other. You know, some some cultures have that point of view. And so in our very American minds, you know, we're (laughs) all about individuality and, um, you know, the best is the best. And so... You know that can really um, challenge our perceptions when we see students who are helping each other. They think they're just kind of being kind and helping someone out, not necessarily that they're hindering them, which is kind of how we tend to see it.
0: Definitely. Um, so, how do these kinds of issues affect the classroom dynamic in an L two classroom? Well, you
1: definitely can see some gaps um, in their their language and. When I, when I first start to suspect um, some kind of literacy issue, a big red flag for me is avoidance. So if a student is avoiding coming to class on a certain day, like, for example, we have our listening journals due on Fridays. And if I have a student who misses every single Friday because they don't want me to mention to them that they didn't turn in their journal, um, you know, that is kind of is a red flag for me and so then I'm looking for other types of writing or I try to have in class some activity um, to find out is it a literacy issue or is the person just too busy because a lot of times if they're embarrassed because they know they can't put pen to paper um, you know they just kind of check out so that's one thing that that I notice so you know what about you is there anything that you like a red flag for you whenever you're trying to figure out a student and say, okay, I got to crack this nut. Like what, what are red flags for you?
0: Um, well, the students who rely too much on phones and translators. Um, sometimes when I read something that a student has written and it sounds sort of garbled um, and I can't quite put my finger on it, but I just get the impression that maybe they used a translator because, the mistakes, it's almost like the words are just all out of order and it doesn't make sense. And so then I think, um, did they type this into a translator and, and have it spit back out in English? Um, and so then I'll just kind of talk to them about that. And that's where in-class writings can be really helpful in identifying yeah. who relies mm-hmm. on those tools and who doesn't. Um, but definitely, definitely try to discourage my students from using anything like that. And even um, bilingual dictionaries, I think, um I would I would much rather see a student struggle through finding a word in English to English dictionary. Right yeah and like you said you know the in-class writing can be key to
1: kind of really figuring out because it's not like they're getting help you know and especially if you're watching them carefully during the in class writing they're not using those translators um, in dictionaries and so you can then kind of get a clean read and and I actually used that in what my listening class the example that I mentioned Um, to really pinpoint like what is going on with this person because they're just never here on Fridays and they never turn anything in unless it's something we do in class and so I kind of did this specifically for this one person and had this kind of evaluation and um, I mean it was for the entire class and there were objectives for the, the rest of the class but I really just kind of wanted to understand this one student better and so Um, In doing that, I saw that he really had no clue about punctuation, um, sentence, you know, he didn't have any kind of like complete sentences. Um, Things just were not complete. But when you speak to him, you wouldn't know that that's kind of what's going on
0: uh, with his literacy. I think another red flag for me, um, thinking back to something that we talked about a moment ago, uh, is when I'll have two students from the same country sit next to each other. And I can remember a semester where I... I, my class breakdown really was almost two of everyone. It was like Noah's Ark. <laughs> I w- and they would all sit next to each other so I'd have two, two Bosnians and then two Albanians and two etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And uh, to me that's a red flag um, because it shows that right off the bat they're kind of looking for that, that comfort or that crutch. Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And I, I remember in one instance where I had Four students from the same country. Um, and three of them sat together and one didn't, and lo and behold, that was the strongest of the four. Really? Wow.
1: Wow. Very interesting. All right, well anything else that you would add to L one, L two literacy? No, I think I think that's good for now. <laughs> video find the video on YouTube or wherever you're getting it from and you know they they think it's going to be just smooth sailing.
0: All fun and games no work involved. Exactly. Yeah I've had that happen before.
1: Yeah well I had it happen today because (laughs) yeah today um, in my 101 class um, I have spring break at the school where both of us teach but the other school is not on spring break until next week so Uh, that's a bummer. I was teaching and I thought well you know what could we do that would kind of gear us up for spring break um and and get people to maybe identify a little more with the topic that we've been working on which is education and so I played part of waiting for Superman and you know I students were ready to like check out you know one guy even asked is it okay if I just watch this on Netflix I've got Netflix (laughs) I said no (laughs) I said no 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 because it's not just watching a movie I'm not here to just entertain you there's more to it definitely so I'd like to kind of talk today a little bit about how do we use videos in classroom beyond just, you know, babysitting like you might with children or, you know, whatever. How how do you use videos in the classroom?
0: Um, well, the first thing that comes to mind is Waiting for Superman, since you just mentioned it, and that's a video that I've used in class before also because I have taught a class um, that also had an education theme, and we read the book Waiting for Superman, and then we watched the video, and I think... Um, for one thing there there are some differences between the book and the video Yeah. Um, so it was sort of double dipping in a way they were like getting a double dose of all the themes that we had covered in the book but from a slightly different perspective or, or you know it was different enough that to them it didn't seem like they were doing the exact same thing um, and I think it just helped bring some of the people in the book to life for them and I think that that can go a long way, putting a name to a face and far, right. as far as getting a student engaged in the topic.
1: Yeah, you're right. Um, we, had, we are not reading Waiting for Superman, but we've read a couple of chapters from the book, and then we were reading other um, parts of other books as well. And so when Jeffrey Canada came on today um, <laughs> and we had read about him, everybody was like, <gasps> wow. oh, that's who that is. And yeah. so it was kind
0: of nice, to, like you said, to put that face to the, to the name. Yeah, I know I had that experience earlier this semester. Um, we read a book called Outcasts United, and it's the true story of an immigrant woman who started a soccer team for refugee boys in Clarkston, Georgia, um, which happens to be a small town outside of Atlanta that has um, become, quickly become one of the most diverse cities in the United States. Uh, it's a very interesting story, but I, I won't go off on a tangent about the book. Um, <laughs> but what was cool was that there was a video of Luma Mufle, the coach of the soccer team, um, being interviewed. And my students just were so excited because here is this person who they'd read all about and she's such a likable, inspirational character anyway. And then to see her and hear her voice and um, kind of like, oh, I knew she was going to be like that or wow, I didn't expect her to be like that. And it was a really fun experience for them. They enjoyed it. Good, good. And so what other ways do you use videos in class? Um, Well, I guess the most obvious um, scenario would be in a listening and speaking class or a Mm -hmm. listening and note-taking class, which we've both taught before. Um, The textbook that we use in the listening and note-taking class has a CD of lectures. And it's a great resource, and um, I don't have a problem with it. But I think sometimes it's nice to supplement, supplement it with other things, um, just for, for variety's sake. So I've used things like TED Talks and videos on demand from our library website. And we'll listen to something that relates to the chapter from the book. And we'll often listen to the lecture from the book as well to sort of build schema and just kind of get the topic, um, just start thinking about the topic. And then we'll watch this, this secondary video and take notes and discuss it, and uh, it'll be on the test in some cases. Right. Yeah, I've, I have a similar approach as well. Um, I usually pick a
1: couple, at least two videos for each uh, unit that we're working on um, that are maybe a little more modern. And, and, you know, last year, oh, my gosh, last year we, I, like, totally lucked out, or I guess in the fall I lucked out because we were doing our section on art, mm-hmm. and we have a, one of our chapters is on graffiti art, and it happened to be at the same time that Banksy was in New York City, oh, wow. and so there was a lot of media going on about that, and, and the students really got into some lively, engaged, um, engaged conversations about, you know, is it art, is it not art, is it, you know, vandalism, and Um, But it it just happened to be like the same two weeks that we were working on art. Banksy was doing his thing, and, uh, you know, we got to watch a lot of videos on that. So I like to pull things in that are kind of happening right now, although that one it wasn't necessarily due to my, um, you know, genius. It was a stroke of luck. But, um, you know, I like to connect with what's happening now because I feel like students – Either if they don't know yet, maybe they're new to the United States, they don't know a lot that's going on culturally in the area, it can help educate them a little bit. Um, but also it's sometimes better than just kind of a, a lecture. It's, not, it's a little more exciting than just hearing kind of a lecture about a certain topic.
0: Yeah, I like bringing in things that are going on also because I think that it, it's a good way of connecting with or making the class um, connect with, the, with what's going on in the world today. And, and that makes it seem more important right. um, so the book that I was just talking about um, the last time we read this book in class which was a year ago um, they we watched a video that had come out during the last election so it was, it was a fairly recent video and it took place in the town of Clarkston Georgia and it was a special um, report about diversity in Georgia and how the demographics are changing in the United States in general and how you can kind of look at this one town as an example for what's going on in the country as a whole and how that affects um, voters. And so it was interesting because they were able to put it in the context of the, the recent election. Great.
1: Yeah, I, I like to use videos as well with books that we're reading. Um, one that my students really enjoyed when we were reading A Lesson Before Dying in a very early um, uh, level class we watched an interview with Ernest J. Gaines um, and so it was basically like a conversation with him about some of the issues in the book and some of the students that were in that particular class, they didn't have a lot of knowledge about racism, um, you know, in the United States and, and cultural issues in the United States and so um, they really enjoyed that that video.
0: Yeah, that reminds me, um, because you're right, For for, for whatever reason, Um, Racism in the United States is not something that our students are as familiar with, Um, and I guess I I say that in a surprised way because many of them have experienced it in their own countries. Um, But with February being Black History Month, um, I usually try to have some sort of listening activity about Martin Luther King, and um, especially since we don't have class on that day since it's a holiday, I um, generally try to have students watch a video about him and answer some questions about him. And if we're lucky, it ties into what we're doing in class. And if not, then, um, you know, I do my best to make a connection. But it worked out great this semester since the theme was diversity.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. We do that in my listening class as well. um, If I happen to be teaching it in February, we'll um, we'll watch a video about um, the Civil War and kind of introduce the topic in that way. And then also about civil rights And then, um, well, I also try to pick a video so that we're staying positive and it's not like, you know, a a lot of um, the heavier type of things. I'll choose somebody who's really successful um, and who's become very well-known in the African-American community. And so this time we we watched a video about Oprah Winfrey um, because people kind of know her and then some students really know about her and others don't really know a lot. And so we watched a biography about Oprah Winfrey and, um, you know, they could see kind of how she reached success.
0: That's really cool. So um, it sounds like using video in the listening classes is kind of a no-brainer. Have you ever used video in a grammar class or or any sort of um, class that isn't as conducive to listening and speaking? Sure,
1: I have. In a grammar class, um, I actually recently used a video because my students, they were, I, I turned the tables on them and they had to be the teachers. And so I wanted them to see kind of an example of a way you could be dynamic in teaching um, and give them examples other than what they were just kind of seeing from me because I didn't want them to just embrace my style. I wanted them to have their own approach to teaching the rest of the class whatever um, issue that they had to teach. And so uh, I showed them a video of somebody teaching about conjunctions and, you know, they really – They liked seeing that, and it gave them some ideas. And you could see the creativity kind of sparking while they were watching it and they were taking notes. And um, the overall effect was that we had some really interesting presentations on the different um, lessons.
0: Oh, that's really neat. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of conjunctions, I I think the only time that I've used video in a grammar class was um, when we were reviewing the parts of speech. And because it was a very long lecture that I'd prepared and – was kind of dry. <laughs> um, I would put links um, to various websites that they could go to for practice. Mm-hmm. Um, but also throughout the presentation, I would put a link here or there to like a Schoolhouse Rock video. Uh, and they we watched Conjunction Junction and Unpack Your Adjectives. And I don't know how much of an effect it made on them as far as remembering the parts of speech, but I think they enjoyed it. And it made them have fun in grammar class for a day (laughs) good yeah
1: that's that is a great video to show though I like that I do and so what about what are some other ways that you use videos you know we talked about using them in class do you use them outside of class at all or like as homework
0: um well in the in the listening and note-taking class I'll sometimes have them listen to videos at home and I know that you've done that also but uh in my pronunciation class I especially had them listen at home because I felt like the more they were listening, the better grasp they were getting on English pronunciation. So they did a weekly listening and speaking journal. Mm-hmm. Um, half of it was conversation with native speaker speakers, but the other half was um, any kind of listening or pronunciation activity that they did on their own, and it was very open-ended. They could listen to a video um, and just try to identify every time they, they heard a certain target sound, um, or maybe it would be a listen and repeat, or sometimes... Um, listening and singing along to their favorite song or something like that. So any, any, how they could, any way that they could practice uh, pronunciation at home. Sure. Through sure. Through video. Yeah. What about you?
1: Yeah, I've definitely used it in my pronunciation classes. Um, and obviously in my listening and note-taking classes, I've mentioned the weekly journals that they do, which are based on videos that they choose on topics that are interesting to them. But the pronunciation um, journals, I have used a lot of, um, videos, because I think sometimes it's helpful for them to hear somebody else saying the sounds. Um, We've also listened to maybe like southern accents or different accents around the the country so they can kind of hear. Yeah, so they can kind of hear the differences. And, um, you know, in my personal experience in learning to speak French, my I feel like my the term I use is my ear stretched whenever I went to the south of France. I'd been living in Paris and was having a little bit of trouble with listening, And then went to the south of France and heard other um, accents and when I came back to Paris Parisian French all of a sudden just seemed that much easier to hear and so I consider myself having stretched my ear and so if I can give my students that experience um, I'm happy to do that you know using a a video.
0: Yeah that that same thing happened to me I think when um, I watched a Quebecois movie for the first time after having lived in France and hearing (laughs) the accent because um, I had been to Quebec before, and I, I never realized how different the accent was. But then um, watching that movie, and it took place in an especially rural part of the country, and I could really identify the difference in the accent. Sure. Um I think that's a great idea, what you said about showing them videos with accents from different parts of the United States. Because so many of our students uh, are perfectionists, and they want to get it just right. And I think that it's help for, helpful helpful for them to know that there isn't necessarily a just right when it comes to pronunciation because English is spoken in different countries where there are different accents and even within one country there might be different accents so there is no um, like perfect accent. Exactly, exactly. So what about for assessing students? Do you ever
1: use videos in an assessment format? Yeah, um,
0: I teach a class on presentation skills and they give um, a lot of practice presentations and I will videotape them presenting and then I use that to assess them at home because it's very hard um, when you're listening to try to be checking things off on a rubric so uh, it's very helpful for me to be able to listen at home and repeat as many times as necessary also it's really helpful for them um, to do some self-assessment so I will upload those videos into Dropbox so that they can access them and listen to their presentation and try to identify things that they might want to work on. So maybe they'll, one week they'll target um, mechanics or the next week they'll target pronunciation and and each time they're trying to improve something. I kind
1: of have a similar process uh, with my pronunciation class. At the beginning of the semester, I have a paragraph that has all of the sounds of English in it and I have them record themselves uh, reading it. And then I go through it and I kind of mark the, the errors in pronunciation that are most prevalent and possibly even the ones that'll give them if they improve it will give them the bigger bang for their buck you know so it might just be one sound that they're improving but if they improve that one sound maybe other people understanding them will be a lot you know it'll be a lot easier for others to understand them so um so I do that and I also kind of track what their main errors are like maybe what their top three pronunciation errors are like you know, maybe adding an S to the end of a word that doesn't need the S um, and whatnot. And kind of keep track of that all semester because for me, one of the challenges in pronunciation class is that everybody is coming to it. You know, we're talking about L1 earlier. Everybody's coming to it from their own L1 with their own sets of pronunciation rules. And so, you know, it's impossible to really target everybody's, you know, in the classroom setting. But if on -on one-on-one or as I'm correcting them, or working with them on a certain project, if I know that a certain student's error is that they're adding the S at the end, that's something I can talk with, have an individual conversation with them about. Um, and it, it's applicable to them where it may not be applicable to everybody else.
0: Yeah, that's, um, that reminds me of one of our colleagues who teaches a pronunciation class, and she uses Vocaroo, which is a website where mm-hmm. you can record yourself for free and then send it to someone. So she requires students to um, record themselves and send it to her. And then I, I honestly don't know what she does after that, if she just uses it for her own assessment purposes or if she has them listen to it. Um, either way, I think it's an interesting idea. Um, I know with my presentation class, um, one thing that I had them listen for and Target when they when they watched their presentations was grammar. Um, So I have them transcribe word for word what they said and then go through and fix the grammatical mistakes. I think a lot of them didn't realize, because these students are very advanced. These are medical students. Um, Most of them are, and I would actually say all of them, are more educated than I am. Um, They're exceptional students, um, and they can speak very fluently. And I think that they don't realize that they still make grammatical mistakes here and there. Sure sure that makes sense
1: that makes sense um so any other you know ways that you use
0: videos in the classroom or well um and again in that same class in the presentation skills class um we've watched different videos on youtube and jennifer esl and on ted talks and um so each week we might talk about a different part of their presentation like the attention getter or the introduction um or we might talk about mechanics or building redundancy um to to emphasize a point or we might talk about thought groups and how that affects the flow of your speech um and so to kind of make it more real for them after we talk about it we'll sh- watch a short video and then critique it together as a class well, how did you feel about that did you think that did that was that an efficient or an effective way to get our attention or um, what did you notice about that person's mechanics or, or whatever? And it, it helps them um, become more aware of the things that we had just discussed.
1: Okay, great, great.
0: You know, I like to use it sometimes too as a,
1: another way to practice this act of summarizing. You know, in the writing classes, we do have them do a lot of summarizing of what they're reading, but that can get a little old. And so sometimes having a video that's relevant to the topic that we're reading, having them watch this video and then having to write a summary on it is just kind of a a way to freshen up kind of that same old familiar activity that they've done a few times
0: already in the semester. I think that's great because I know (laughs) that one of my, one of the downfalls in summarizing for many students is relying too much on the text that they're summarizing. Um, And if they're listening to a video, I think it's probably pretty rare that they can transcribe everything that the speaker's saying so <laughs> yeah um it it makes it easier to avoid plagiarism well
1: and you know what's funny that you, that you say that um whenever i announce you know okay we're going to watch this video and you're going to write a summary so make sure you take good notes they always ask can we write the summary at home because i think they think they can find a transcript you know ted if you watch a ted video they all have transcripts as well as some of the videos yeah. on demand um or films on demand in our system and so you know, they, they think, oh, well, I can just, you know, catch the transcript and write my summary at home. And then whenever I say, no, 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 no this is an in-class summary, um, it's like, oh, okay, now I have to get serious about about listening to the video and taking some serious notes. So, yeah. So do
0: you use that um, as an assessment, as a way of assessing your students in class, uh, have them listen to something and respond to it right away?
1: I have. Um, I use it in a pretest that I give to the highest level writing class that I teach. Um, and I've used it in the listening and note-taking class as well as a pre-test. Um, and then sometimes we'll do a post-test as well that kind of has a similar type of uh, a type of structure to it where they're watching a video and then writing that um, summary during class.
0: So what would you say uh, are, are some of your favorite videos?
1: Ooh, okay, so I love some videos and I know that, um, you know, everybody probably has videos that they love. And and if you have videos you love, please tweet Jim. us. Send us a tweet. Um, but some of my favorites, um, I have to say, one that we just did, and I've used it a few semesters with my listening students, um, is on child development theorists. Uh, we study a child psychologist unit within the book. And there's this great video. And you can Google and find it. I think it's on YouTube, but it's also in our films on demand. And... This video um, basically walks through, starting at Freud and going all the way down to, like, Gardner and multiple intelligences, walks through all of these child theorists and kind of what they're famous for and why, you know, everybody um, knows them in terms of, like, child psychology and and kind of builds on the foundations of the, the previous child theorists, um, child development theorists. So we do that, and then part of the test is that I give them uh, – it's kind of like a grid that they have to fill in. So they have to fill in the, the rough dates of when the theorist was alive and what their names are and then also why they're famous. So um, I, I love that video. I think it's a great video. It's very straightforward and it packs a lot of information in there, but it's easy for students to process. Um, so that would be, if I'm going to give like my top five videos. Yeah, that's number do, five. Because
0: I'm teaching this class next semester and I love <laughs> to. to Get some of yes. your advice.
1: So that's number five. Um, number four for me would be probably that Ernest J. Gaines conversation that I mentioned earlier. Um, students love an interview. You know, they like to kind of see an interview. And and this one in particular, like I mentioned, it just brought up some issues that students really found compelling. Um, number three, I would have to say, is eight steps to success. Uh, Richard St. John on TED. Has a great video. It's, it's very short. I think it's around three minutes. And I use this video, I pull this out when I'm getting like attitude from students about, you know, my grade, why aren't I, why don't I have a higher grade? Or even just to use it midterm. Um, because basically he talks about, you know, eight steps to success. And, you know, like one is like push. So you're pushing yourself. And one's focus. And so I have them watch the video. Um, since it's so short, we can usually watch it twice. I have them watch the video. And then they have to write a short essay describing how they are going to, from this point forward, use at least three of these steps to make changes in what they're doing in my class so that they can receive the outcomes that they want.
0: Wow. I love that. It, it takes listening and speaking and then brings in um, writing writing. And self-assessment, self-evaluation, that sounds like yeah. a really great activity.
1: Yeah, I love it. And I've used it in my listening and note-taking class. I've used it in a grammar class. I've used it in um, a business English class that I taught last semester. Um, and that one, especially students, really all, you know, everybody wanted an A. And I'm like, well, tell me why you deserve an A and use this. And if you can tell me what what you've done over the semester, because you can also use it as reflection, You know what have i done to succeed or you can use it as what will i do to succeed in the rest of the semester so you know it's kind of a a reality check for students you know well what am i really doing and so i love that video and i use it often Um, so my next one you know i kind of fawn all over jennifer esl Um, i think she's great Uh, my students love her I mean, they really love her. I have a student that I had last semester in my pronunciation class, and I introduced Jennifer ESL. Um, and now even in my listening class, his his videos that he watches are Jennifer ESL videos. Oh, like he, every week, he's watching another one. So good for him. And um, she really has a wide variety of videos out there for grammar, pronunciation. Uh, she presents things in a very easy to follow way and and makes it interesting at the same time and so i really appreciate her videos um, as well
0: i definitely would recommend jennifer esl to my pronunciation students for their weekly listening journal and actually we used it in my presentation skills class also um because she gave a very um very clear explanation of thought groups yeah
1: yeah and i have to say when we were coming up with the whole idea of having a podcast um you know, one of the reasons for me personally that I decided maybe we should dialogue rather than like be teaching students, so the, sh- the audience would be teachers rather than students, is because there are so many great videos out there for students already. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's I would be afraid that what we'd put out there might just be noise, and so you know, it's hard. It's hard to keep up with the likes of Jennifer ESL. That's noise for sure. Anyway,
0: but <laughs> but if you're listening, then right. Thank you, and <laughs> we hope you're enjoying it. <laughs> So that, that brings us to number one. What's your number favorite?
1: one. Oh, my absolute favorite. And this one, there's not a dry eye in the house after we watch this video. Um, it's the last lecture by Randy Pausch. And so some people may not have time to show the whole lecture. So I want to let you know there is a version that's like 10 minutes long, 11 minutes long, where he just kind of packs in the main ideas of his last lecture. Um, and it's on Oprah, Oprah's website because he was on. Oprah and she kind of got him to condense it. So if you're not familiar with the last lecture, um, basically Randy Pausch uh, found out that he was dying of cancer and um, he was a professor at Carnegie Mellon and gave his last lecture. But his last lecture, the audience wasn't really the students and the faculty that he was speaking to. He was speaking to his children. So he's talking about, you know, how do you live a good life? And so, you know, he gives some really great tips about how to stay focused in, on what's right and do what's right. Um, and he really talks a lot about gratitude. Um, and so I'm kind of getting chills right now speaking about it, but um, students really love the video. And at the end, it's always heartbreaking for me to tell them that, yes, he did, he did pass away. Um, and they, they get upset, but um, they do like this. They like this lecture. I use it sometimes at midterm um, when we do our live journals. Um, or I may use it at final time to do another live journal. Um, I, I, I really love this this video, and I think it, I, for me personally, every semester to watch it just kind of brings reminders to my own personal life as well. So.
0: Yeah, that's, that's definitely one that you have recommended to me in the past, and so I know that I have used that one, and now I'm anxious to use some of the others that you recommended, especially the um, Eight Steps to Success.
1: Oh, yes, it's, it's a good one, yeah yeah so great all right well like i said if you have any videos that you like or you want to share with us or that you know approaches that you use with videos please tweet us you know at the minimal pair
0: and maybe i'll respond um i'm becoming more of a presence on twitter i tweeted one time and this would be good practice for me
1: yes so come on reach out to jean and help her out help her out all
0: right great mm-hmm. that you're on spring break at one school but not at the other. Um, I am much luckier. I'm having spring break from both schools. But, Rub it in. Uh, <laughs> that, well, not that I'm not working, mind you. Um, but that's kind of what we're going to talk about tonight for Adjunct Antics. We're going to talk about schedule issues and um, not only is it spring break right now, which is one issue with scheduling, but it's that time of the semester where we're starting to think about next semester and where we're starting to um, our bosses are starting to ask us oh wh- what would you like to teach when are you available so it's time to start thinking about fall already <laughs> even though we're only halfway through spring it is and you know it is it can be a little
1: um it can make me a little nervous because I want you know I have in my head this ideal
0: yeah
1: the perfect schedule, schedule. <laughs> you know this will <laughs> allow me to have coffee in the afternoon and grade and you know but you know that's not always in the cards um because every every campus they have their own needs and you know I can't expect them to to just play into my own personal need for coffee and uh (laughs) grading so um yeah I get a little bit nervous because I don't like to say no and I, I don't like to say well I need to wait
0: until I know what's going on with the other school or right But you hate to commit to something when you don't know what is going to be offered to you from somewhere else. Exactly.
1: Exactly. And there, you know, you can probably tell if you're listening, you know, at home, you can probably tell that there are things that we're more passionate about and less passionate about other topics or subjects. And so, you know, if if I have a chance to teach one of my favorite classes, I would definitely prefer to do that rather than um, sometimes, you know, have the security of teaching a less favorite class um, just because it's offered first.
0: Yeah, and um, unfortunately, that's only one of many factors that goes into to planning the schedule, but maybe is the most obvious one. What do you want to teach, and yeah. where do you want to teach? But then there's also the fact that coordinators at different schools will ask at different times. So, so you are already being asked by one person, and you hate to say yes because then that might mean... Saying no to someone else. Exactly. That is a
1: big part of life. I've learned as an adult is that when you say yes to something, you're saying no to a lot of other things, and it can be a heartbreaking thing at times. But you know, you have. That's why it's important to really um, say yes when you mean it.
0: And it's not just about um, getting that ideal schedule or teaching what you want, but another major factor to consider is income. How do you maximize your income by choosing or by planning your schedule the most strategically? Because if you make yourself completely available at one school, then what do you tell the other school? And so you're kind of trying to limit yourself to certain times of days and, or uh, certain times of days um, so that you can really get as many classes as you're capable of teaching or more, <laughs> like
1: we sometimes do. Exactly. Well, yeah. Although this semester, 3 I'm going to say three writing classes is a, a little much. I may have to maximize in a different way next semester. But um, yeah, and as a parent for me, I have two young children, and I prefer to teach between the hours of 9 and, and 3 p.m. So I'm available for them, um, you know, before school as well as being able to pick them up from school. And so that kind of puts some, um, while it allows flexibility in my life, it does put some constraints on the types of classes I can take. It's not to say I don't or won't take an evening class, for example, but I prefer to not, you know, have my children in aftercare after school um, if I could be home with them. So-
0: well, right, and, and we were just talking about income a minute ago, and if you're making money just to spend money on childcare, then you might ask yourself, wouldn't it make more sense just to – teach before three so that I can be with them
1: exactly yeah yeah and that's part of why I don't teach in the summer either because if I don't have an evening class um, I would have to put my children in child care for the eight-week courses and that can be really when you have two kids um, you know putting them in camps or childcare, it can be really expensive and so I have to kind of think of it um, in a practical way is, is am I going to, to still net enough money from taking the class if I have to pay for you know, extracurriculars or activities for my children
0: to keep them busy until I can go pick them up. Right. Well, I uh, don't have children, just a dog. (laughs) So I have a lot more flexibility and have, in general, taken classes at all kinds of times of day, so that I might teach at nine o'clock in the morning and then have another class at nine o'clock at night with a seven-hour break in between. And um, that can be really stressful, too. So just look on the bright side when you limit yourself to a certain time period. Um, it, it does limit what classes you can get, but it probably makes your schedule yeah much more comfortable. Well, and I'll say, you know, I think adjuncts are
1: quite an adaptable bunch because, you know, we're growing, we don't have the same routine every semester. You know, you have to take a couple of weeks to get used to a new routine at the beginning of each semester and then it all changes. You know at the end of the semester so um i think we're quite adaptable in that we can you know figure out ways to come up with our routines and our ri- rituals and you know like our morning rituals and and adapt so that
0: we uh, we can take different classes at different times another way that i think we have to adapt is when classes get canceled as they frequently do um, because of low enrollment um, so it's not uncommon to to think that you're going to be teaching a class only to find out at the last minute that no, that class got canceled, um, can you teach something else? And obviously, you want to say yes, because that's better than missing that class altogether and, and being short that income, um, but it does sometimes mean scrambling at the last minute to get a class together um, three days before it starts. Right, right. Yeah, I one of the times that it happened to me um,
1: was when I was teaching a uh, beginning Writing class, and that semester we were reading four novels, and so I had only read one of the novels, um, and thankfully I had read that one, and so I had to very quickly, within like I think a week, try to read all of the novels so that I could plan a cohesive class. Um, Because I, you could wait to read them, you know, until it's time to read them with the class, or you know, up until you know a couple weeks before that, but. For me, the planning just goes better if I kind of know the themes and know everything that's going on in the books from one book to the other, so I can kind of help plan that.
0: So so that it does present some some tactical challenges as well. Well, um, in addition to being adaptable, I think adjuncts are very strategic, and, uh, and that's a very strategic move to try to read the books ahead of time. Um, I've had semesters where I haven't done that, and I've had semesters where I have, and Um, it can go either way Um, but definitely preparing for a class at the last minute especially one that you've never taught before Mm -hmm. um, that can be really stressful and I think that when it comes time to pick what classes you're going to teach for the next semester you you try to be strategic like I said and think what's most likely to make what's most likely to fill up and so you look at time of day um, you maybe look at what other sections are offered and when and Um, oh, this is the only section of this class that's taught in the evening, so I I feel like it has a really good chance of filling. And so you try to take all these things into consideration to minimize the likelihood that your class will get canceled at the last minute. Right, right. Understandable, understandable.
1: So we want to hear about how you cope with, you know, the changing schedules and being adaptable and, and having to kind of, every semester make changes to your schedule. So feel free again to tweet us. Nobody's tweeted us yet. So please, please be the first. Be the first one. And we'll even give you a shout out in the next episode. So definitely tweet us and let us know. Um also I think Jean wants to do a t-sol countdown.
0: Countdown to Portland. We leave two weeks from today. I'm so excited. Um I think that in our next episode we will be discussing um, some of the sessions we hope to go to. And then, obviously, after we get back, we'll have a lot, a lot to say about it. So two weeks till TESOL. That's right. And so until then, keep it minimal.